Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line, talking to the movers and shakers and TV and filmmakers, writers, directors, producers, composers, production designers, editors, sound editors and mixers, uh, costume designers, you name it, and we talk to them. Um... We've had some really phenomenal guests the past few weeks uh, and a lot of great interviews. Um, as a matter of fact, there's one interview that I just did the other day, and if we have time at the end of the show, you're going to hear part of it, with Mario Van Peebles. Um, Mario has a new film that is out called A Clear Shot. Uh, and if we don't get to just an excerpt of the interview today, you will hear all of it on BehindTheLensOnline.net later this week. Um interesting film where Mario plays a hostage negotiator. A Clear Shot is written and directed by Nick Leisure. It is his first feature film and it is the narrative telling of the good guys robbery uh, up electronic store robbery up in uh, Sacramento area, I believe it was uh, a number of years ago. It is still the biggest hostage situation um, that the country has had. And it's fascinating to watch this, especially in this time. Uh, and n when they made the film, they had no way of knowing when it would come out, if it would get a distribution deal. And so that's, it's fortuitous that a clear shot comes out now. And Mario's character is quite interesting as, as Detective Rick Gomez, uh, the hostage negotiator, because we see him interact with a multiplicity of races, genders, uh, ethnicities throughout these negotiations, including combating racism within the police department, uh, Vietnamese, um, uh, Vietnamese youth are the ones who perpetrated the crimes, uh, one of which, the one survivor of the four, uh, is alive. Uh, the others were all killed uh, during the hostage situation, but the one is currently serving uh, multiple life sentences in prison. But to see how easily situations escalate and then how they can be diffused. And it comes through talking and it comes through communication and understanding. And uh, Mario has some great insight into uh, that kind of into the situation. Um, he also, his father is Melvin Van, Van Peebles and Melvin, as many of you know, and if you don't check him out, um, he marched with Martin Luther King. He sat down with Malcolm X. Um, so Mario has a very unique perspective on so much and to see him in a role like this, um, it makes, a, it's a powerful statement and, Marshall Hilton is also in the film. Uh, Marshall is superb as a police detective, a white police detective at odds with Rick Gomez on how to proceed and what to do. And you see a meeting of the minds of the two of them as they as each sees the other's perspective. Uh, and the film is out now. Everyone needs to see it. It is perfect for our time. 
uh, timely, topical, a well-done film. Um, but as I said, my interview with Mario will be out later this week. And Pam, what are we doing with the phones? Somebody was on hold. The phone just disconnected. So while we're uh, so, let me just jump into and tell you who is joining us today. Busy, busy day on Behind the Lens. First up, we're going to be talking about the film Algorithm Bliss with writer-director Isaac Borg and, and writer-director-producer Dina Heisel-Cornejo. Uh, and at the midpoint of the show, Punching and Stealing. Um, we're going to have writer-director and actor Ryan Churchill and his partner in crime, Danny Parkes, Parker Lopes, uh, also writer-director and actor in the film. Both films, opposite ends of the spectrum, um, each is entertaining. Punching and Stealing has a sweetness and, and fun to it. Uh, Algorithm Bliss is it's fascinating, it's frightening. It is the future, but it makes you ask, is the future now? Now, who do, do we have both on one line? Okay, well, all right. So we have, let us welcome right now then, we'll get this party started, a big welcome to Isaac Borg and Dina Heisel-Cornejo. You're both here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yay! You could have called in on different phone lines. You know that, don't you? <laughs> you know, we've, we've just found this to be easier, so you guys don't even have to think about it. We're both here. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, welcome. All right, let's hear from Isaac. Isaac? Yeah. Okay, you're there. Just want to make yeah. sure. Just want to make sure. You should call me Borg. I should call you Borg. I will do that. You know. You. And considering the Borg makes me think of the Borg in Star Trek, and considering um, the premise of algorithm bliss, it's kind of fitting. Um, what a fascinating film. Uh, it's fascinating. It's frightening. Uh, I love the collision of ethics and morals, technology. I, I didn't think Sean Ferris oh. had this in him as the lead in this film. He is outstanding. Isn't uh, he wonderful? Oh, my. Oh, what a... Revelatory. He, he just, you know, when, when we met him... For, for this role, we met him, and just we knew after after our first meeting with him that he was really who could pull this off with the kind of transformation that the character has to go through. Uh, I was, my jaw was just hanging open. By the time we get to the end of the third act, probably the last eight minutes, ten, eight minutes of the film, my jaw was just open and hanging there. Um seeing not only Sean's performance, but how the two of you have made this story unfold. Um, to let our audience know, Thank Sean, you. Sean plays the char- uh, wannabe you. doctor um, who is <clears throat> leaves Harvard Medical School uh, for reasons which, which you will find out when you watch this film. And he loves doing research along with his partner. Bless you, bless you. Uh, with his partner, uh, Henry. And the two of them design 
an app so that you can actually wear a bracelet. You can tap into this app and you will be filled with feelings of bliss and love and wonder. Um, and hey, that sounds really cool. But the, the best laid plans of mice and men. Um, where, let me ask both of you, where did the idea for this story come from? Because you are, you're melding science and technology and morals and human foibles and greed to a very large extent. So where did this come from? Uh-oh, did we lose them again, Pam? Talk about this film. But to give you, tell you a little bit more about Algorithm Bliss. Oh, is that them? Okay, they're back. Okay, we're back. You're back. You're back. We are. <laughs> well, I was basically just giving a summary to the, to the audience of what the film is about. So tell me. Oh, good. Borg and I don't need to hear that. We know what the film is about. You know what the film is about. <laughs> the, idea, the idea originally came when um, I read about an experiment in the University of Washington that they were designing to um, where participants were a mile away and they were passing thoughts through the Internet through these caps they had on their brains. Wow. So there was a possibility to transmitting thoughts. Um, these are very basic thoughts, of course, mm -hmm. uh, between these participants that were a mile away. Wow. Wow. So this actually, this is actually, the future is now uh, to a large degree um, with this concept. And you just, you extrapolated that and turned it into... I don't know, the shades of Frankenstein happening here as well, which is something I find particularly appealing uh, and very interesting, the way you developed this. How difficult was it to craft this script and to take something as beautiful and wonderful, in theory, as tapping into emotions so for people that are suicidal, you can bring them around uh, through uh, through this app uh, or people that are constantly depressed. Um, how did you go about developing this story as three-dimensional and as full-bodied as it is while really addressing the moral ramifications, um, the ethical ramifications, and what happens when things, as they off always do in science, trial and error go awry? Let's try this again. Okay. <laughs> no, so what I was asking you before it it fell out, um, how did you go about developing this script and taking it into the directions that you take it and address the multiplicity of themes um, that you have here? Because you, you have the moral and the ethical implications. You look at the fallout that can happen with, sci with science and experimentation. Um, and then the, the whole human aspect here. You could have gone in so many different directions. But I think with these sorts of questions that in a lot of ways are real-world questions that we're, that we're dealing with every day as far as we have technologies introduced every day that mm -hmm. we have no way of projecting out what they will become in a year, two years, five years. 
there's no way of separating those things. So in order to make a film about them, you have to tackle all of those aspects Mm -hmm. or it won't feel like you're dealing with the reality of situations. And, you know, in genre films, of course, you take those things and you heighten them, but you don't want to get away from the actual, the real world implications Mm -hmm. of what is happening in the connection between humans and technology on a daily basis right now. So I think that to us is really important when we were, uh, when we were looking at this project is saying, what are all the ways that, that these sorts of interactions and these sorts of new technologies affect us um, as, as a whole person, rather than taking one aspect of it and focusing on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love how you address all of these and you really leave it to the audience to uh, to figure out for themselves. Um, is this right? Is this wrong? Um, it's a very thought provoking film on the whole, but you really everything is developed so thoroughly that you leave us to our own devices without telling us what's right and what's wrong which I think it just heightens the whole experience of this film thank you now you you know how do you go about developing this from a visual visual point of view your visual tonal bandwidth is fabulous kudos to your to your cinematographer Will Turner Um, beautiful job um, Will's fantastic. We love working with him. Oh my God! Uh, you know, visually, you've got a polish here, but your lighting—the way the lighting is designed—speaks volumes as to where we are in the mindset of Vic, in particular, Vic and Henry, um, and the way that you differentiate the design, the lighting design differentiates between the real outside world and the scientific world. Um, you've got wonderful metaphor happening there. A lot of windows, lighter tones, and more light in general uh, when we're out, when Vic is with his girlfriend or trying to win her over um, or meeting with uh, an angel investor for the company to develop, further develop and promote this app. Um, and then we get into the inky blues and the sickly yellows and greens um, as we get more into the science and the testing. The contrast, it's, it's striking, and it says so much. So I'm curious wh- how you worked with Will to come up with the visual tonal bandwidth here. I think, I think one of the things we did um, kind of to even prior to that is um, we actually brought in a comic book artist to do our storyboards for us. Oh, wow. Um, So they were much more detailed than typical storyboards, which then we were able to sit with Will. And of course, you know, you know, of course, pull the full lookbook with him um, and went over uh, place by place what the intention was in it, in each of the each of the contrasting environments, mm-hmm. um, and then you just you have the combination of that 
with like happy accidents with the way the locations were. Uh, (laughs) And it's always that combination, right? Of everything you can plan and then the things you don't come together. And you're very, we were very lucky that it came together like that. Um, You know, but, but Will is so thoughtful in being able to plan, plan out what, what we wanted to do. And one of the things we really wanted to get get into when we pulled the full, the full color palette is really contrast of within the science world having those grays and steels and blues mm-hmm. and then when you pull out into the world outside of science making the uh, making it much more naturalistic and less stylized to give you that contrast between the two looks mm-hmm. No, it, it's absolutely fantastic. And, of course, then at about the 90-minute mark, we really see the camera. The camera really starts dutching and speaks to us that the entire world is askew, be it the world of science, be it the real world. Everything is now askew, and we see that through the dutching of the camera. And it's just so well done, so effective. Thank you. You know, how did, you know, another big element with this film is your music. One would not think, you did not go with what we typically would expect in a quote-unquote sci-fi or quote-unquote horror genre. Um, MJ Minarski's music here is superb. At, and the way you have it mixed, um, it is so subtle so subtle it's almost like uh, it's almost like the app itself is tapping our brain waves and i i just thought, for lack of a better word it's very cool so what kind of conversations did you have with mj about the the music for the film uh, well one of my favorite conversations was that we went in Oh, so we had given him a rough a, a rough cut of it. You know, we, we worked with MJ before on a, other projects, and just I think he's absolutely brilliant. We'd given him a rough cut um, for him to just just pin down the track, pin down some tracks, that that kind of thing. And we went to to sit down with him and, and talk through it. And he played a couple of scenes for us. He played a couple of scenes with some temp music, and said, you know, this is kind of what I think you would you would expect, that kind of thing. And then he turned around and he said, now I want to pitch you something that you're going to think is totally crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and we sat there and said, what? And he goes, I think thematically it should be country western. <laughs> and he said, what? And he pulled a bunch of these, a, a, a bunch of, you know, classic, uh, classic country tracks and laid them into the scenes. And the first one he, the first thing he laid in a country track over was the scene where, where um, Henry and Vic are, hmm, how to say this without giving anything away, are taking the other man out of the car. Mm-hmm. And he had laid in a country track over that. And the contrast just got us all up in our emotions about it. And, and we started going, oh, I 
I think this could work. I think this could really work. Um, and we uh, oh, we took a couple of days to sit with it and, and think about if that's the direction we wanted to go. And we came back and we just said, let's go for it. Mm-hmm. I, I think it works beautifully. Um, you know, anything, you know, you got a, a little nod to Hank Williams happening in there and, you know, it's mm-hmm. very soothing, very calming. Um, and it's very old school, which is directly contrast and country music taps into emotions, uh, traditional country music, uh, which is the whole premise of this app tapping into emotion. Um, so it works. I, I love, I love that he came up with that uh, and that this is what you went with because it really enhances the entire experience of Algorithm Bliss. Thank you. You know, I'm curious. I've got to ask you, Borg, how did you guys divvy up the work, the production work on here? Um who was handling most of the directing? Was somebody more in tune with working with the actors? Um, so I'm curious how you guys broke that out. Anytime you get into, you know, co-anythings, it's always interesting how that plays out. No idea. <laughs> it just sort of worked out. Um, uh, Dina was much better than me at the action scenes, and she did most of um directed at that point, and um, it just went from back and forth. Mm-hmm. Did one... Mo- it- you know, Mo... Dina? We also, we, uh, you know, we work together in the commercial world as a directing team also, and so we've got a kind of ebb and flow down that mm-hmm. seems to work pretty well for us. Like, we, you know, we've been working together on pro- on projects either as directors or as co-writers or, or or producing together for a decade at this point, and so we've got quite a bit of a shorthand in knowing where the other person is sitting as far as thinking things. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, we we just we go back and forth, and I think we, uh, we complement each other really well as far as what at any given time we're seeing within within a frame to work on. Mm-hmm. How did you guys go about casting this film? Because, you know, it rises and falls on the character of Vic, but also Liz, Henry, and then our, our CEO, uh, our angel, our angel investor, um, these Frank are, these are, these are yeah, I Frank, loved him. Frank is always outstanding. So what did what did you go through to put together this cast? Because this is really it's those four that are the primary uh the primary ensemble here. Um so we brought on Russell Bose to cast it for us, um, who is I think is visionary in casting. He is he is somebody that brings you choices that are not the direction that you were thinking of. And the minute you see them, you know he's probably right. <laughs> well, I so, get, I never would have thought of Sean Ferris to play Vic. 
Uh, never in a million years. I have to tell you, when, when Russell pitched him to us, we, uh, we were like, huh, that's not, that's not quite exactly what we were thinking. And then with, uh, within the first minutes of us meeting him, mm-hmm. we were like, that's exactly what we need. We needed his kind of, uh, he's got a natural kindness and vulnerability on Screen, mm-hmm. that you have to be, be able to see in Vic all yeah. the way through this process or you don't care about what's going on. And that's just something that Sean has as a person in general. Um, and so him being able to bring that to the character, that piece of it to the character, made such a difference on mm-hmm. screen. You know, Borg, what, what, was it, what is it about Frank, about bringing Frank Deal in? I love seeing Frank in anything. Um, so what is, what is it that made it special to have Frank uh, be brought in here in this role? He, he, he brings a sort of intensity to every scene um, and um, just turned on this intensity of, uh, that you felt like he was really the investor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I, I started chuckling because you've got, there's a one scene in there where he's talking about, um, you know, this can't happen. You know, there were some glitches and he's yelling. He's freaking out. That cannot happen again. Make it stop. And the way he does it's right. and, and you really believe that this guy has invested every penny in the world and that of, uh, you know, a bunch of other people. And he has no clue about what it takes to make it stop. Or to make it work. And it just he just kept punching things up. And then he takes off in the third act. Um, that, that just was... That third act, guys, is just amazing in this film. Uh, oh, thank you. It, it, I did not see this play out the way it does. And the way it ultimately plays out... It really makes you stop and think and wonder about what really is going on in the world in many respects right now. Um, this is another film that is it's coming out at a perfect time with questions and unrest that make you think. Um, you know, how do you feel about the film coming out now in the midst of, you know, COVID and you know, which I think that actually helps your film because people have gotten a better sense of scientific testing because of all the reports and Dr. Fauci on testing and antibodies and vaccine developments. And that comes into play here with the science behind Algorithm Bliss. Uh, so I'm curious as to your, your feelings on the timing of this film hitting the world now. I mean, I think, you know, I think at a point in time when you have the world focused on both scientific research and the problems of big money being involved in everything, I think it speaks to the the societal problems that are happening on a lot of levels at that point. And it's it's nice that these are things that people are paying attention to while this film is coming out in, into the world. 
And what about for you, Borg? Yeah, about the same. I'm glad that um, it's coming out of this time, particularly also that people are watching more things at home. <laughs> what are the two of you watching <laughs> at home besides Algorithm Bliss? Nina? Um, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Put and you on the spot everything. there. <laughs> um. What do you call it? Uh, you, you know, I mean, kind of with the timing of, of everything that's going on, you know, here I'm watching a combination of things like 13 and Marvel films are where I am. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Borg? I'm, I'm watching The Great. Mm -hmm. And um, Waco I watched. Um, oh, I just watched all the Sopranos. Oh, my gosh. Which, which took a lot of time. That's so. an undertaking. That's yeah, an that was, un I had never seen it, and it was like, oh, it was amazing. Oh, it truly is. I'm thrilled to hear you say you're watching The Great. I, I think I am getting a kick out of that series, a real kick yeah, out really of like that it. one. Oh, my God. Well, the good thing is now for everybody out there that is saying, posting on social media that they have seen everything there is on Netflix. Um, they now have something new that they can see. They can all go see Algorithm Bliss now. It's because it's available on digital. Uh, it is. So, so it is a, it's a rolling release on the digital platform. So as of today, we're on Voodoo, Spectrum TV, and DirecTV. And more platforms get added throughout this week and throughout next week. Oh. Now, will it be coming out uh, available on DVD and Blu-ray? It will. Eventually. Um, I believe that is a month out from this point. Will we see any extras? Maybe. <laughs> That's all. I will go buy, you know, when I have a film that I like. I'm one of those people that I will go buy, especially if they're extras. I will buy a DVD or Blu-ray specifically for the extras when there's fun stuff. So. We did not do a director's commentary, so that is not it. That's okay. Um. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. That would be fun. That, on this film, I think that would be really, really fun. Um, but, uh, well, unfortunately guys, I have to let you go for the next two filmmakers. It's, it's jam packed today with you guys. Um, I, I, oh, thank you for having us. Uh, you know, thank you for taking the time. Oh this my God. So fun, Debbie. Oh, yeah, thank you. You have to come, thank you. you have to come back on the show. You're very welcome, Borg, but you have to come back on the show, um, with your next project or maybe even when this goes to DVD and Blu-ray and we can talk about the extras, the maybe extras. Oh. That sounds good. Oh, guys, thank you so, thank so you. much. Thank Algorithm you. Bliss, digitally, you can all see it now. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
And that was Isaac Borg and Dina Heisel-Cornejo talking algorithm bliss. And now, wait a minute, let me, I'm moving pages here, Pam. Okay. All right, go ahead. And now we have our next, our next pair of partners in crime joining us on Behind the Lens. We've got Ryan, Ryan Churchill and Danny Parker Lopes talking about punching and stealing. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having Thank us, Debbie. I am so excited. I love this film. I, it Good. just, Ryan, you just melt my heart in this film. Uh, as as Sam, uh, you just this is just the film is so sweet. Um, there's a great sincerity to it. There's no, there's nothing fancy in terms of cinematography, uh, sound design, music. It's all it's simple. It's straightforward, and you really just let us focus on. The foibles of Sam and the things he gets into in his chosen profession. Uh, an IT man with a twist. Um, give, give, the, give the listening audience uh, a summary. S- uh, summarize what this film, what Punching and Stealing is about, guys. Yeah, P- Punching and Stealing, and this is Ryan uh, and Danny's on here with me, is uh, it's basically a somewhat ridiculous yet grounded cathartic film about revenge. So I play uh, Sam Brandsby, a kid whose father's pension fund was uh, embezzled, basically squandered, which is very common out there. Yep. Uh, corporate fraud. Uh, people, you know, have their mo- their hands on your money that you've been saving your entire life to invest it for you. And then you're supposed to get it when you retire. Well, his dad's has been lost and he's left to take care of his dad. So, the courts have failed him, which is kind of something you assume off screen. And he <laughs> stumbles upon this underground faction called Pension Recovery Force uh, in the streets of Las Vegas. Uh, Las Vegas happens to be where there are many CEOs living. And so they just go out and start uh, beating people to get the, the money back out of revenge. So it's just, uh, like I said, un, uh, uh, unrealistic yet cathartic revenge. But when I wouldn't say it's that unrealistic, though, Ryan, because when you look back over the past couple of decades, there have been a lot of scandals like that um, with, you know, pension funds being bled uh, from from corporations. And there are a lot there are a lot of people out there who have lost everything or even when you just look at the stock market and. Uh, you know, with what we just saw when it plummeted in March into a bear market and people mm-hmm. lost so much. I'm one of them. Lost a ton. Oh, good. And you just got, and it's like, what do you do? Um, yeah, no, and, that that aspect of it, definitely very realistic. That was based on, I wrote that went during, uh, right after the Enron scandal. Had happened. Enron was huge in the news. So there are many other cases out there yeah. just like that but that one happened to be what what the the basis of it was for so yeah that aspect of it is very real i just yeah. uh i wouldn't encourage people to walk into ceo's living rooms and start feeding them <laughs> but you know just you know they can watch this film they can watch punching and stealing instead and vicariously get that yeah, thrill yeah, that you. satisfaction 
you know, that's I so good to hear. I felt you, that's I kind of what we were going for. Trust me, I felt vindicated. <laughs> good. Watching. I'm sorry that happened to you. <laughs> watching you, you know, um, you know, I I felt somewhat vindicated. So it it is very cathartic when you watch it. Um, you know, I love this combination here. Um, Ryan, you're a writer, director. Danny, you're also directing on this. And you're both in the film. Ryan, you, you are the lead. You're in, what, 98% of the frames. Uh, and then Danny, I love your character of Santiago. Uh, <laughs> just so cerebral and intelligent, too. Um, so was it always the intent for you guys to be wearing all of these hats? Um. Uh, I, I wish it wasn't so, you know, we, we did raise a little money and it just kind of got to the point where, you know, we said, let's just make it. We, we kind of knew what we were doing. We knew sort of what to do and learn from others. And, uh, it wasn't truly the intention. It just kind of happened to the point of like us being dumb enough to go heck with it. Let's just make this thing to shoot it. Oh my god! I, I love that you said that. We knew just enough to like, get ourselves in trouble, and then realize what the hell are we doing, and then have to work our way out of it. Oh my god! Well, you know, and it's very funny that you say it that way because I just got a new book, and I actually have it on display here on the set today. That is get real isms, a hundred plus things to know and say if you want to be co- a cool and smart filmmaker or appear like one. So. Perhaps this this might have been a book that you could have used when you embarked on this. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, we, we weren't even, like, we didn't even make a shot list. We were just like, all right, what's next? And we were just like, oh. I don't, you know, in, in retrospect, we were terrible. Uh, you know, how did you go about, t- you've got this on paper. And now it's, oh, well, okay, I'm going to star in it, too. Oh, okay, I'm going to be in it, too. Um, and then you have to put together your crew. Uh, you've got two. You, you're, you're working in multiples here. I like that about this film. Um, you've got two DPs, uh, Sean Greasy and, and, uh, and then Andy. And then you've got three editors. Ryan, you're doing editor. Andy is also editing. Carol Haynes is editing. You got two composers. I like how how you've got backup for everything happening here. Uh, so, <laughs> so talk to me how Holy. how you put this together. This is an indie film, uh, what I lovingly call low budget, no budgets, micro budgets. Um, yep. And so, and you have an abundance of people here in in key positions, including yourselves. Uh, in front of the camera and behind the camera. So how did you put this together to have so many people in these key positions and put together such a, a sweet, fun film? Uh, the interesting thing about it is that it, the film came together basically in three stages. So it was never truly intended to be a feature film. We shot the short. Uh, okay. That was initially just to prove ourselves that for, for me as a writer, uh, actor, that I could write and be in something because that's how I was 
brought up at Second City. That's just what you do. You write and then you perform your own material. Mm-hmm. So, so the first 36 minutes of the film is the short. The, then from 36 minutes on is the... Uh, we then got more money because the short did really well. We won Best Comedy at the Santa Monica International Film Festival, got into a bunch of film festivals, got some more money, had interest from HBO to make it a series. You know, I don't know if you know how that goes, if your listeners yep. know, like, that's a big gauntlet that you can, that we went down and nothing ever happened with right. it. So then we got more money, we shot it, that's when web series were very popular, so we shot more, we shot uh, six more five-minute episodes, so from minute 36 to the end of the film is the web series that never went anywhere. We barely, we, we didn't even really do anything with that, and so the short and the web series sat on the shelf. I oh went and made God. another film, learned a lot more, uh, learned, did more directing. And my first film got distribution, and I learned a lot from that. And I said, wait a minute, this thing's sitting on the shelf. And I know for a fact from what I've seen out there in other micro-budget, no-budget films, this this will be just as good, if not better, than anything out there. So, And I'm the third editor. I went back to all the old footage the raw footage, and I re-scripted it, and I wrote a few wow. more scenes. So there's some um, uh, inter- intermittent scenes that you'll see me in an interview. I won't spoil what the interview is. Right. I went and reshot those. Uh, basically, at the, uh, uh, when was that? Like uh, November of 2019. Um, and so then I put those in there, and that's how the entire feature film of Punching and Stealing came together. And that's why there's so many uh, different people Oh my three God. different or two different people in oh those key, key positions. But, you know, this is a very good lesson for indie filmmakers, Ryan, because uh, so often, so many people, they shoot. They shoot stuff. It doesn't go anywhere. This is why you save everything. This is why you don't throw it away, because you, you can repurpose and you can reimagine what you've already done and turn it into something even better. Um, that's, this is a very, you are a prime example of economy and ingenuity by the way that you have put this together and done this. And, and the end result, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It is wonderful. I appreciate that. Um, you know, how did, now, how often, now the two of you worked together before. What is it about this partnership? You both worked on uh, the series uh, Choke Kick Girl, correct? Yep, that's the that's the short. That's, that's the, the short. So, you know, what is it about this collaboration, this camaraderie, that makes your partnership as filmmakers work? Um, well, Danny and I worked together in a theater company, mm-hmm. so. That's basically like family, and I'll let, it was Danny's theater company. I call it Danny's theater company. He was one of Aww. the founding members, and I'll kind of let it, let Danny chime in here uh, as far on this on this one, buddy. Okay. Um, well, it's I think just working with him, I would laugh constantly, and I I, I think it's just like any workplace. You, you uh, and this happens to be something that we both were passionate about. When you can go to work and laugh and have the time of your life every day, I mean, what more could you ask for? Like, I've been trying to recapture that in every essence of, of my life. 
and um yeah working with him is so easy i think we both like come from a blue collar background there like you know the blessing and the curse was we kind of didn't know what the heck we were doing but that was also a blessing because we were both let's just get her done you know in a blue collar way uh and you know at first it starts off as more passion than knowledge and then eventually we kind of learn our way but uh working with him we just it just always laughed so i was like oh this can be life where you can just laugh and have a good time well you know and and I love that you said that you said that, Danny, because that that explains the sincerity that comes across in this film. Um, Mm. You don't get the kind of sincerity on screen unless you have that kind of relationship behind the screen. It it just doesn't. It just that it just that authenticity, and but the sincerity um, of the characters. That's very sweet. And, I and, appreciate that, and I think uh, it's uh, yeah. He, he, we work to establish a lot of that, and I don't I don't know a lot about much of anything, <laughs> but uh, being honest and vulnerable and sincere is one thing that um, I'm 100% uh, confident in capturing. You know, how difficult was it for the two of you with casting this in its various stages? Obviously, once the two of you are in there. Um, you've got Jenny Villam is in there as Jen. Mel Rodriguez is fabulous. Um, you've got yes. Link Hand. I've known Link for a number of years, who comes in as Defective, uh, Detective O'Hayes. You've got Maurice Compte in there. Um, Link, I don't think I've ever seen him this funny. Um, he really comes... He, 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 he's, not, he's not funny. If he's listening, he, he's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's like you, link has been popping up everywhere of late uh from 68 whiskey to this and uh, he was i just saw him something else um but he's very funny as detective o'hayes here um you do a lot of visual tongue-in-cheek stuff also but your casting you you know how difficult was it to cast this because you know one of your linchpins is that Sam really had Ryan? You really have to have a connection, albeit kind of strange one. But you've got to have a connection with Mel Rodriguez's character as Sam's boss. Um, and it's it's here again. It's that sincerity and sweetness because he looks at Sam almost with a very paternal paternal feeling about wanting this kid to succeed. And inspires him with each job. Uh, so I'm curious. Yeah. So how challenging was it putting this cast together with these people in such very character-specific roles? Yeah, I. And thinking back on it, it, that wasn't really that difficult. So I'll just so Mel Rodriguez. <laughs> I had gotten to know him. For, I, I interned for his manager, uh, Stacey Abrams and still his manager to this day. So I was talking to Mel pretty much on the phone, like three, four days a week, um, you know, and because I, I, just, I just got to know him, and, and I, I looked up to him and kind of used him as a mentor. So the fact that you said he was kind of a father figure, that's kind of how I, I saw him as well, is because here I looked at, you know, somebody successful in the business, and I had just moved to L.A., so I – enjoyed my conversations with him and and sometimes he would just call in to talk to me and 
it, it was great. And then I asked him to do this, and he was like, of course. And um, then he, then Maurice Compte is a friend of his. Link mm-hmm. is in our theater company. Jenny Villain was in our theater company. Ashley Rideau, who plays Amber, is one of my best friends. Everybody's in the theater company or is a good friend of ours, uh, other than I believe we held uh, an audition for the other two bad guy detectives um, that I beat up on the top of the of the mountain. Those guys are, are good friends of ours now. <laughs> and then, you know, and then you've got a nice little tidbit. You know, Matt Eisman shows up in here um, and you get to beat him up. You beat up Matt Eisman. Yeah. Wow. For American Ninja Warrior, Matt Eisman. Yeah, he's, uh, I was in the Acme main stage comedy uh, theater company with him, which was another theater company that that I was in. So I I was good friends with with Matt as well, and also from the stand up world. So he, we, we, that was a fun rehearsal day of like, all right, you got to pick me up, buddy. (laughs) You know, now now you just mentioned a key word that we don't get to talk about too often. Uh, in low budget, no budget, micro budgets, um, rehearsal. Um, you have scenes that are very that are heavy, very heavy with with care, with actors in them. Um, you don't have too many situations of just one person or or two people. Even when Sam is going to do his job. Um, there is generally bodyguards to get through to the person that Sam has to collect from. Um, so there's always a multiplicity of people that generally requires rehearsal, but in low budget films, you don't get rehearsal. So how did that work for the two of you in terms of, were you able to give your actors rehearsal or did you really just rehearse the action elements? We, Danny, we, we did, um, well, of the choreographed fight scenes, we did slow walkthroughs over and over and over on the set, you know, on the day. And then Jenny Villam and I, uh, and Danny would do rehearsals at my house, uh, just out of, cause we liked it and we were used to it from, from doing it for our plays, mm-hmm. uh, with the, the spy and theater company. So we did have time for rehearsals. There was no, but we weren't, they weren't paid rehearsals, which, just was you know nature of the beast but we did actually rehearse a lot of the kind of more sentimental and uh, scenes that required a connection in the relationship and and an arc of a scene and and that's where danny was really instrumental in that i I couldn't have done that without him Mm -hmm. so danny i I, the benefit of no one being successful yet (laughs) that we everyone had time exactly so it was like what do you mean we we just come over and rehearse. I mean, now, of course, we couldn't afford to do any of what we did, but um, it was a blessing. So I've got to I've got to ask you, Danny, because obviously, while Ryan is on camera, you're the one who's working with the, your cinematographer and you're behind the camera. Um, how well did Ryan take direction from you? Uh, the best. The best. He, um, and I couldn't ask for anyone anything better i think that's what he just trusted me and you know we'd always try everything and then you know if i had ideas um we would try them and i think uh yeah i think it was a true collaboration i don't i don't think you know part of it you know he wrote it and you know it was a lot of it was his vision as well Mm -hmm. and um a lot of times i don't know when i direct i always think of myself as a bullshit detector 
and um, you know, just like you had implied in terms of searching for honesty and and just being real. And uh, he he works the same way. So um, mm-hmm. he could go and chew on the scenery um, with anyone, but I would try to uh, be as honest and real about it. And he was, you know, he's always willing, and that was, you know, one of the pleasures. Mm-hmm. You know, I gotta ask. You mentioned the 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 fight choreography. Who did you have do the fight choreography? Because some of that is really well done. Um, and you've got it in such close quarters, which is always extremely difficult and has a tendency to be dangerous at times. So who did your fight choreography here? Um, a, a couple of different people. I, I, I hear Danny laughing. Uh, I hear Danny <laughs> laughing. Um, all right, I'm ready. I'm sitting down. Go ahead. Yeah, hopefully our hopefully our attorneys are here. We didn't have a set fight choreographer, so um, I trained with. There, there's a guy that's in a scene briefly where he's laying. I'm laying across him in what's called a crucifix, and I'm punching him in the face on a table. That guy's name is Ian Harris, and he's a uh, a fighter coach, and he owns his own gym. And he um, basically, I, I learned basically like here's the fight, what would happen here, and he would tell me, and then we would go in, and, and I was kind of the choreographer, and then the guy that played uh, Kodo, Matthew Jones, a good friend of ours, he also had fight training, and so we would all, all three of us would kind of just have notes and then get to the scene and do slow walkthroughs and then slowly pick up the pace uh, and then do it not it's never full speed. It's always at like 60% mm-hmm. of what a real fight would yeah. be, but the way it's filmed makes it look quicker. So we were, we all were, it was collaborative. It was me, Danny, Matthew Jones, and Ian Harris all kind of collaborated on the, the fight scenes. Uh, it, Cause they look really good. I've got to tell you guys that they look really good. Um, well, oh, thank you. you. I, it's one thing that kind of uh, is, for me, like I watched the the Bruce Lee uh, documentary was on today. I don't know for what time this this airs, but uh, and oh, it's live. No, never mind. Uh, that yeah, was we're on live. last night, and I love Bruce Lee, but it's so choreographed. Like that was always like uh, I, I would like to have seen him in something modern to where it is choreographed, but it doesn't look like it's choreographed. Because real fights aren't choreographed, and I tried to get I try to get that across on screen because as best I could. Well, I think you did a wonderful job with that. I know we're almost out of time, but I have to ask you guys about your score. You do, you've got score here. Um, yeah. What, and, you know, that's generally like the last thing people think about when you have no money. Uh, it's, is, is score. It's like, okay, we can just go something, get something temp that's free. Um, but you didn't do that. So talk to me about what you were looking for in a score and your composers, uh, Nathan and Chris, and how you came yeah. up with what you've got. Yeah, absolutely. Those guys are, are great. They're, they're good friends of mine, and um, they had been composing music for other friends of mine, and that's kind of what their trajectory is. So what I did is I literally went into the YouTube audio library and put temp music in there to just give the feel. And then those guys uh, just worked for points, back-end points on the film. And uh, they took what I gave as temp tracks and uh, just replicated the feel, but yet are much different than just, I didn't want just, you know, like catalog 
YouTube tracks in there. So they were amazing. They didn't like when they delivered to me, I didn't change anything. Every song in there is exactly how they delivered it in the place they delivered wow. it. And I, I was blown away how, how well they, they did it. Well, you know, now this comes in, punching and stealing comes in at a very brisk 85 minutes. Um, and I have to tell you, when it ended, it's like what I said, I wrote back to Annie and I said to her, it makes you laugh, it makes you smile, it makes you want more. It ended and I'm like, okay, I'm ready. Where's the next one? Um, it, it, that, it just, there is so much charm. Um, but, you know, was it difficult getting it at, at the pacing at the 85 minutes when you were doing cut and paste and pulling from prior things, shooting some new stuff, plugging it in? Um, it surprisingly wasn't. I thought, number one, I didn't think it would work at all, and then it did. And then my first cut came in at about 103 minutes, and so I wanted it to be down to 90. I got it down to 90, and I, I was like, it's still there's still parts that drag a little bit. So I cut a scene, two scenes out, and that got me down to, to 85. And I was happy with the pace of it. And and anything, you know, in the world, in the marketplace, anything over 80 for most cases is considered a feature. So I left it. I just left it right there. Yeah. No, it, it moves along briskly, smartly. Um, you never feel like you're languishing and like, what is happening? Um, you don't get any of that. It just keeps going. And in moments where it's a little quieter, you know, again, Ryan, it's the sweetness that you give to Sam that it's like it almost feels warm and fuzzy. And, you know, I'm just waiting to see a grandmother come and pinch your cheeks or something. Um, well, thank you. Danny, will you stop laughing at him? <laughs> <laughs> you guys are Dan, so Danny true. did that Dan, well you you're, know it works you, you express it better than ha you express it better than me but that's I guess that's if I'm you know checking into my heart that's kind of how I feel so kudos to you uh, so now where can everybody see Punching and Stealing available anywhere you stream so digital Blu-ray DVD it's uh, Apple iTunes Amazon Amazon Prime to rent and uh DVD, Blu-rays at Walmart, Target, Best Buy, and pretty so, much everywhere since there's no theaters open. And since stores and since all of the lockdowns are being lifted, you can actually go into the store and buy them now. You don't have yeah. to order them and wait. If you want to have exactly. the, if you want to have the real thing in your hand. What a concept! Yes, I, and I got to tell you. I will be buying this film to have because this is the kind of film that I know I can pop in at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, just on a Saturday afternoon. I will want to watch this over and over again because it's I just... you on that? <laughs> yes, you can. This, Thank you. <laughs> this is... It's the kind, it, it makes you feel good. It makes Thank you, you feel good. It makes you smile. Uh, it makes your heart smile. And I want to see more adventures of Sam Bransby. Yes, we're using it as a proof of concept for a series. So there you go, Debbie. I Hopefully want it's more. it's going to be a series. Oh, fingers crossed on that one. Or if not, turn it into a sequel. Perfect. 
Amen. Guys, thank you so, so much. This has been so much fun having the two of you on the show. You have to come back oh, on the show. You. you have to come back again. Um, you know, go make some more stuff. Come back on the show again. Um, it is so much fun having you. Thank you so much. Well, you're fantastic. Oh, we appreciate you, you having us. Uh, anytime, guys. Stay safe out there and go make me a sequel. You too. We will. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Ryan Churchill and Danny Parker Lopes talking about punching and stealing. It truly is unfettered simplicity, sweetness, and sincerity. It's wonderful. Now, I just have to give a shout-out before we sign off. I have to give a shout-out. This was on the Tablescape last week. For those of you that are watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook stream, or you check out uh, my after-show photos on social media of the t- our Tablescape, which I do every week, you will see Francesca Saratella's Ghosts of Harvard, a brand-new novel, uh, it is Francesca's first novel. She is the daughter of my longtime pal and New York Times bestselling author, Lisa Scotellini. This book, a lot of people have actually been asking for book suggestions of what to read uh, during lockdown, during COVID, because COVID isn't going away. So a lot of people are still going to be staying at, in home, uh, especially during the summer. And once you can lay out at the pool or once you can lay out at the beach and you don't have to keep moving, um, you want something good to read? Ghosts of Harvard. Uh, it is a fabulous read. Um, it is a wonderful first debut novel novel for Francesca. I can't wait to see what she delivers next. But I had to give a mention to that. And then, as I mentioned earlier with the boys, Get Real, R-E-E-L-isms. 100 plus things to know and say if you want to be a cool and smart filmmaker or appear to be one. This is, it's a fun book. There are pictures, guys, filmmakers. There are pictures. It actually looks like maybe little storyboards, um, but it defines everything for you. So when you're jumping in, okay, so if you're, if you're actually looking at the Facebook stream, you can see a set without tape is like a body without connective tissue. Yes, I love duct tape. Um, so that's it's it's great, and I think it's twelve ninety five, uh, if that. But that is all the time we have today. You've gotten book recommendations, two great films, four wonderful filmmakers. We'll be back next week with another co-directing team. Um, we may have a, we may have two co-directing teams next week. We have one right now that's scheduled for the midpoint of the show. So until next week. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 